certainly not without um, illustrious panelists here, and I will introduce them now. We're going to start with Emily Lordy, who is a program committee member. She is assistant professor of English at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and the author of Black Resonance, Iconic Women Singers and African American Literature. She is writing a book on soul aesthetics and a 33 and a third book on Donny Hathaway Live, one of the greatest soul um, singers, but greatest soul live albums ever recorded. And we're going to have Emily here. Come on up. I just want to, uh, first of all, say what a pleasure it is to be here at the Palm Conference um, in general and on this fabulous panel in particular. Thanks to Rashad for drawing us together. It's a privilege to um, be talking about Aretha Franklin with people who have taught me so much about her and about soul music um, more generally. So I'm going to approach the concept of Franklin's holy eroticism, and I appreciate Rajat for kind of giving us this phrase also. is extremely generative. Uh, I'm going to approach it primarily through Franklin's gospel performances. So I'm going to take us back to Amazing Grace, actually, uh, fittingly enough. These performances help us to see, I would argue, that even when Franklin is not singing about romantic love or sex, she is activating an erotics of friendship or fellowship, what we might call the platonic erotic. So while we tend to think of the erotic in sexual terms, I want to venture that gospel and, by extension, soul performances of the 60s and 70s were just as often animated by the erotics of friendship, as is perhaps most evident in the work of Franklin's contemporary, the soul singer Donny Hathaway. So we'll start in the church with Franklin's 1972 crossback over album Amazing Grace. On the title track, Recorded at the New Temple Baptist Missionary Church in Watts, Los Angeles in January of that year of 72, we can hear some of Franklin's techniques for generating uh, musical tension, suspense, climax, and release, all of which I understand to be fundamentally erotic effects, uh, what Rashad Olison has called in a conversation with me 10 minutes ago, uh, her sort of almost musical foreplay uh, that she activates. So... First of all, you'll hear that she takes, you won't hear all of this, but I'll just tell you, that she takes a solid four minutes to sing one verse of the song Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and fears, I have already come. T'was grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. She lingers over the line, through many dangers, toils, and fears, tarrying over the word through, working through it, slowly bringing the congregation to a fever pitch of excitement. There are peaks and valleys throughout this one verse, suggesting an erotics that privileges process over destination. When she hits a stunning high C on the word dangers, that note establishes a new precedent and generates an expectation that it might come again. And it does, although like all good things erotic, you have to wait for it. 
So we hear Franklin's um, second performance of this particular note on the word grace in the clip that I'll play for you now. And we'll also hear how she works through and beyond that climactic moment. more minutes to go in that particular song, um, so it doesn't even end there. But the song, Amazing Grace, is artfully composed to, so that its melodic peak arrives on the word grace, making the rest of the line a denouement that leads the listener back down to the word home. But Franklin manipulates the song's structure to sustain the erotic charge even after that putative climax. She provokes a call and response on the word safe, so safe, um, making that lyric its own intense mini-drama. It's such an interesting choice to, to make the word safe, sort of ironically, its own dynamic event. What's more, though, she holds back even as she arrives at the very doorstep of the word home, deferring the phrase right on home by staging another call and response on right on. This moment of secular nationalist solidarity is staged at the threshold of the song's conclusion. It not only delays gratification in the erotic sense, but it also resists the final resting place that might absorb the erotic revolutionary energy that Franklin has aroused. We certainly hear this energy um, also in Franklin's secular pop performances, for example, in her legendary version of Dr. Feelgood, which she records live at San Francisco's Fillmore West in 1971, um, which I would discuss if I had a little bit more time. Maybe we can talk about it afterwards. But suffice it to say that she kind of simulates an orgasm um, in the middle of the song. So there's that. But what I want to do right now um, is move on to Donny Hathaway and his own kind of creation of musical community through erotic musical techniques. As many people will know, Hathaway was an extraordinary singer, pianist, composer, and arranger who uh, suffered from paranoid schizophrenia and whose life was therefore cut much too short by his apparent suicide at age 33. He was Franklin's label mate on Atlantic Records in the early 70s, um, certainly less celebrated than Franklin, although she herself loved him. Um, until, that is, Donnie teamed up with Roberta Flack, who was one of Franklin's many female rivals. And I know this thanks to David Ritz. Um, but Hathaway was one of the only artists of that era um, who could really match Franklin's skill at totally recreating somebody else's song. So whether he was covering work by 
the Beatles or Marvin Gaye or Carol King or whoever. Like Franklin also, um, he honed his inventive improvisatory skills in the church. And although he rarely sang about sex and was rumored to have a complicated relationship with his own sexuality, uh, he shared Franklin's flair for the dramatic as well as her brilliant understanding of the erotics of performance. So even as Hathaway sang eminently chaste songs, like He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother, for instance, his impossibly slow tempos tease the audience while his rumbling gospel rubatos delay climax. So I'm going to demonstrate some of these techniques by playing you a version of He Ain't Heavy that Hathaway records in Los Angeles in 1971. The song was originally recorded by a white Brit British rock group called The Hollies in 1869, and Mark Anthony Neal notes that it is, quote, rife with great society-era cliches about colorblind brotherhood. But Hathaway remakes the song into an anthem of black resilience and community. He introduces it by telling the audience that it expresses, quote, a concept that we all should have. He ain't heavy, he's my brother. He and his band then proceed to take it unbelievably slowly. So this is like the definition of taking your time in gospel parlance. Um, so, but the choice both heightens the drama and it also gives the song its due because when played at this tempo, the beauty of each chord is unmistakable. Like the song itself, which conjures a new future shaped by a concept that we all should have, Hathaway's tempo invites listeners to look forward to, to anticipate each coming moment. Midway through the first verse, Hathaway sings, Lord, help tonight, and he then performs his own receipt of that assistance. The next moment he sings, but I am strong enough at a much fuller voice than we've heard thus far, and with a higher volume. So this is his breakthrough moment, the point at which everything else about this particular song comes alive. So I'm going to play you just the beginning of this. With many a winding turn That leads us to who knows where that at least one person in the audience is excited about <laughs> these, these moments, right? These, these little peaks, these little climaxes um, in the course of this particular song. I'm going to now jump forward to uh, this long, drawn-out gospel interlude that Hathaway plays that will climax with the statement, it's a long, hard road. 
I'll play you just a minute of that right now. that kind of focus on the, the process while we're on our way to there why not share um, that that sort of focus on on process as much as the conclusion or the destination I'm suggesting is enacted through Hathaway's own kind of form what we notice is that Hathaway's deferral of the line about the long hard road evokes or recalls Franklin's deferral of the amazing grace that will lead us right on home but what is remarkable about Hathaway's song is that there is no grace or home to get to here, the point is simply to finally say that the road is hard. That's it. That's the whole destination. Um, so in contrast with, with Franklin's um, particular kind of brand of gospel fanfare, then, Hathaway's erotic climax lies precisely in the collective recognition of shared struggle. This is what James Baldwin in his masterful 1963 essay, The Uses of the Blues, would call um, a certain kind of joy that Baldwin is very careful to distinguish from happiness. Um, he, he describes this kind of spiritual joy that one might find when there is nothing left to lose. And it's about witnessing, celebrating, and sensually embracing a life that may, as it was for Hathaway, be gone too soon. This erotic testimony to shared vulnerability and resilience explains, I think, the synergy that one hears on Hathaway's classic 1972 live album, um, half of which was recorded at the same shows in, in Los Angeles that He Ain't Heavy was recorded at in the fall of 1971. Um, so the crowd, so when we, we hear this especially, this kind of synergy, especially on his cover of Carol King's uh, You've Got a Friend, there we hear that the crowd joins into the very first chorus, and although Hathaway hasn't asked them to do this, although he has asked, encouraged them to sing along with him and kind of orchestrated this call and response between the men and the women in the crowd on other songs, he doesn't actually ask for their participation in You've Got a Friend, but they just jump right in, especially it sounds like the women um, in the audience just jump right in and kind of assume the role of Roberta Flack singing the main line of the song that Roberta Flack has sung in Donny Hathaway's duet recording with her um, released the previous year. So he doesn't ask them to sing, um, but nevertheless, he kind of registers and rides the wave immediately, sort of recalibrating his own performance and instantly beginning to sing back up for them as he had done for Roberta Flack. The crowd continues to sing, and he continues to embellish their main lines so that by the end of the song, he's made a room full of friends. Even that very em em embell embellishment of the main line, suggesting that he's working sort of in the gospel mode, sort of as the gospel soloist, embellishing the main lines of the uh, chorus behind him. But anyway, um, it seems as though by the end of the song, he's made a room full of friends. So not only with himself, because clearly 
they love Donny Hathaway, as you have heard already in the audience's response, but also sort of suggesting a, a friendship across the room, you know, with each other, this thing that they've been able to make together. Together, the audience enacts the fellowship that he ain't heavy envisions, um, sort of sounding the notion of a group full of people strong enough to carry each other. We might return then, finally, to Franklin's Amazing Grace concert, at which she recorded her own innovative rendition of You've Got a Friend, uh, using the song to reharmonize Thomas Dorsey's gospel classic, Precious Lord. In Franklin's rendition, Jesus becomes the friend who will come running to our aid. This bold arrangement generates a pleasurable friction between gospel and pop, sacred and secular realms, between the friend we have in Jesus and the friends we have in each other. Both meanings are voiced in this one moment that I'm going to play for you um, when Franklin's vocals intertwine with those of another woman singer whose voice kind of emerges. Um, and the woman, you, can't, you won't be able to hear this very clearly, but the woman is singing, he, he'll come running, while Franklin sings, I'll come running. So we hear that. playing it, but I uh, <laughs> will close now just basically by suggesting that the musical erotics of black friendship were crucial in this moment in the early 70s, an era of unprecedented state-sanctioned anti-black violence. In this context, the music bodied forth and helped people to hear their own powerful, sanctified allies, which was one reason why the music could become black people's amazing, if not saving, grace. Thank you. Before we bring David up, I was um, wanting to open it up for any questions, comments to um, Emily's beautiful presentation. So, questions, comments, anybody? Rick. Yeah. 
And and Aretha, she had two children by the time she was eighteen. Um, so, but I think also in and of course this is in David's book, and he'll maybe touch on this. But I think because there was a certain maybe liberation she may have felt. I mean, I, I'm just you know projecting it just because I mean she, from what we know um, and what's in the book is that she. Um, I mean, she was pretty free, but there were a lot of other free spirits too, sexually yeah. in the gospel mm-hmm. realm. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it, but you know, it's interesting that publicly she demurs from talking about any of that, and always have. But um, that's very uh, much in her music, you know. And I think because she had that liberation, perhaps, or you know, from what I understand, it wasn't any. Um, uh, she wasn't. Uh, she didn't have a problem with her sexuality. Is what I'm trying to say. It, it, mm-hmm. And so it seems that that sort of freedom of expression informs. Her her music always has, I think. So yeah. was, was I mean, I can oh, just I'm quickly sorry. respond to some of these comments. Uh, first of all, I do appreciate Ricky your point about that sort of um, almost alternative or or unwritten uh, or sort of less frequently spoken genealogy of of gospel music. That kind of sexual B side um, or even origin, the kind of blues roots of gospel itself, and dating back to somebody like Thomas Dorsey, who does have his sort of first career as I think he's called Georgia Tom. Right, um, sort of working with with blues women and different blues artists before he finds Jesus and gets saved. Um, but the the fact that his his music, his gospel compositions, nonetheless, kind of bring that that blues um, charge, sort of some of that blues formalism into them. Similar to somebody like Mahalia Jackson, who brought the blues famously. Right, that's one thing that it means to um, sort of create this new genre of gospel is to kind of bring bring the blues into the space of the church and into the spiritual music. And she was a scandalous performer. I mean, many people were not ready for Mahalia Jackson, who may seem kind of saintly, uh, you know, so many years after, but the way that she would dance and kind of move her hips, and she was understood to be a quite sexual, sexually charged performer. So that's absolutely there um, in, in gospel music itself, and I think that you're absolutely right that Aretha is sort of um, plugging into that. I also think that it makes sense for her to perhaps publicly uh, denounce or downplay that aspect of her music, just given the ways that black women performers have historically been sexualized, sort of, um, you know, without their consent, we may say. So her attempt to really control uh, that image, to push back against the the controlling images, right, um, that we know that black women have historically been subjected to, uh, it's sort of... It makes sense to me, you know, in that regard. But finally, you know, precisely because soul music, you know, being understood to come out of that that gospel tradition has been seen as, you know, kind of sexual music that is preoccupied with, of course, love and romance, I think that it's interesting to think about, to kind of twist that a little bit and think about friendship there and the sort of erotic charge of that. So that was one thing that I was, the, the primary thing that I was trying to do through this particular paper. Could you talk a little bit about, because um, Adani worked as a side, um, a session musician for Aretha. I mean, yeah. the, the Masquerade is Over, I played, he, that was him on the piano. Mm-hmm. Could you talk in, a little bit about their relationship and sort of the musical relationship, or the musical friendship, as it were? Yeah. Um, hmm. That's interesting. I think it's in Jerry Wexler, your <laughs> biography of Jerry Wexler, that he explains that Donnie comes to him and says that he, he has one of Aretha's very early albums, and he wants to sing songs like Skylark in the way that she does, right? Oh. 
And so that was really quite a breakthrough for me. We were talking earlier just about how often um, black women's influence tends to drop out of these particular genealogies. So, you know, it's it's easy to kind of compare uh, the whatever woman artist to the, the male precedent. And this is so so often the move that we make. So for that for that reason, in part, I found it so refreshing and interesting that Donny Hathaway claimed Aretha as a sort of primary innovator and an influence on his own work. Um, in terms of their kind of musical relationship, I also understand perhaps from, from your biography of Aretha, that didn't she say that she felt like they came from the same place? Yeah. That the first time that maybe Jerry Wexler played uh, his music for her, she instantly just had this sense that she understood him loved him, you know, appreciated him like many people, many musicians anyway, did as a, you know, he really was a musician's musician. But there was that extra almost kind of experiential kinship that she felt with him. And so it doesn't surprise me that she wanted him to kind of play with her. Um, But in terms of their actual kind of personal relationship or, or, you know, a more kind of, uh, I don't know, Friendship in the in the usual sense. I don't really know very much about that. So. There are pictures of them in the studio together and all of that. Um, yeah. But both were very private people. I'm going to go ahead and then mm-hmm. get to Jody here. Across across different genres, did you so say? Huh. Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question, <laughs> and I don't really, I don't know that I have a, a really comprehensive theory of that at, at this particular moment. Um, how holy eroticism works differently for male and female soul performers, but. Um, no, I mean it's definitely it's definitely something to think about. I mean, in part, I think for just to return to Aretha for a moment, that's one thing that makes her so exciting. Is you know, in some ways, it's <coughs> the excitement of her getting on stage and, and performing a, a clearly sexual song like the Doctor Feelgood uh, performance that I mentioned is partly predicated upon the sort of um, dutiful gospel daughter image that she seems to perform off stage, right, in that very, you know, as many people have said, uh, kind of reserved, closed off kind of 
um, persona. So I guess that would be one thing to say about her is that there's a very clear relationship. I mean, a theatricality both to what she does often on stage, mm-hmm. but that one reason why the holy eroticism of the live performances I think has the special charge that it does is because it feels like it's not happening anywhere else. You know, you're not going to see everything in that mode at any other night. You know, any other kind of points. Um, except for this really special kind of sanctified live performance space. And perhaps that's another thing that makes that community so um, so special, is that, again, it, it seems like the people who get to be here to witness this, you know, with each other, um, is it's all, again, the more kind of extraordinary precisely because her demeanor is different offstage. I think it's true about the men, too. I've interviewed Al, and he is, I mean, he's has a really interesting sense of humor, but he demurs too at anything sexual, although sexuality ripples through all of his performances. I think it's kind of, the, and they come from the same church, you know, in the sense. I, I, I think it's the same for the men. It's probably um, probably the only arena in power where you would see that sort of um, equality, as it were. You know, like hmm. the men and the women are in that same performance space, that holy eroticism is the same. And they... Yeah. That's helpful. Thank you. Interesting. Jody, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> the, the erotics of pain. Well, I guess part of what I'm suggesting is that there's something kind of painful, but pleasurably painful in the delay and the suspense you know, that she creates through. I like that term, the slow-boiling performances that we heard. Um, yeah, yeah. The erotics of pain. What is that beautiful song that Carolyn writes? It's not Angel, but it's... Um, oh... 
Ain't no way. Ain't no yeah. way. Ain't no way. Mm. Yeah. Um, Damn. The climactic moment of that song is, I just find it so incredibly powerful. And, um, and I'm not sure that it's one that you wait for exactly, so much as one that kind of sneaks up on you is in this really high note that she hits on the bridge of that song. Um, well, Sissy. Yeah, she's in the background, but you're talking about the note that oh, Reaper yeah. hits. I don't mean the like crazy oh, high like yeah. whistle register note, but yeah. I just mean... Um, At sort of the end of the know. song as she's building up and then... Is, you're talking about Aretha's? Yes, I'm talking yeah, about Aretha. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and unfortunately, I can't really call it to mind, which is good because I don't want to try to sing it anyway. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that might be a moment of, of the kind of erotics of pain because I think that there's something um, really like beautiful about that the the painful you know the pathos of that kind of moment and the longing and the yearning that it expresses um but i also don't know that there i think it stands out to me as an extraordinary moment because i don't tend to think of aretha as a hard on her sleeve type of torch singer in quite the way that i think you maybe do or that you're describing um i tend to think of and i'm getting this from a scholar and poet um ed pavlich who suggests that he hears something almost like self-defensive in there's almost like a, a veneer that he hears not only in franklin's offstage persona that we're talking about but even in the music itself um as dramatic and emotional as it seems to be that there always seems to be something in reserve um, and, and that he was sort of thinking about the cultural politics of that sort of alongside the Black Panther Party for self-defense, you know, and thinking about this sort of performance, a black woman's musical performance of self-defense. So in that regard, and I think that there's something in that. Um, in that regard, I think I, I wouldn't maybe say that there's really all that pain, but I like the idea of there being kind of erotics to it when, when it is there, Yeah. And it's the stuff too, because they all come had painful lives too. Aretha's no different. Right. Um, yeah. Do yeah. um, you know what Baptist Christian music Baptist. Yeah, she's In a way, I always thought that was a continuation of the blues women. Um, because, you know, if you're thinking about, when you talk about Aretha's artistry, you also have to talk about the segregation at that time and the life that was very black, irrevocably so. And the music, the way the women expressed themselves. I mean, now we sort of compare it to a mainstream idea, but it was its own little entity, its own u u um, universe. And Aretha was very much informed by all of that. And women in the blues, instead of going back to Bessie Smith, Mm. Um, they were very certain mm -hmm. about their sexuality. Um, mm -hmm. And even concurrently with, well, later on, I mean, you got the rise in the 70s of Millie Jackson. Um, you know, these were black women who were very, and they were always have been that way. And even in the church when it was cloaked in a spiritual performance, there was something very assertive about the sexuality there. And I think it's, it's when respect sort of started to enter the whole ma mainstream women's lip, because it was a number one pop hit. So then it's like, what does this mean to all women? Well, it may mean something, to, but I, I think for black women, it, it meant what it always meant. I mean, that were, they were always asserted their sexuality in these yeah. communities, in the juke joints, in the clubs that white folks didn't go to. 
Yeah, and I, I write about the song Respect, and you know, definitely it has been thought of as a sort of women's lib, um, black liberation kind of anthem, no question about it. Uh, Aretha herself said that although she didn't have um, she didn't have an explicit politics, she she was happy that other people seemed to see it as a battle cry, you know, so she wasn't going to deny the way that it had been received. Um, but, you know, when I write about it, I think about the sort of tension between Aretha's big call for a lot of respect and then the back of singers, her sisters in the background saying just a little bit, right? And this, you know, sort of tension between, like, give me my propers, but the singers in the back are kind of like, well, or maybe just, you know, a little bit. And is that, like, trying to manipulate the man to, you know, give, give them what they want? Or is it, you know, a kind of moment of kind of anti-feminist accommodation or whatever? But, you know, thinking about it in erotic terms, it's interesting to think that, you know, that in and of itself is an erotic, you know, just a little bit, like just a little bit for now, and then a little bit more later. And to think about it in terms of that kind of musical foreplay that you described, I think is also interesting. So, yeah. All right. And one more that we have David up. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. It also reminds me of the Bill T. Jones, Arnie Zane Dance Company, and just the fact, like, what does it mean to name a company after half of, you know, with, with part of the team, the, the partner, gone, right? To kind of name that absence and to hold that absence within the name. But, um, yeah, I mean, with Hathaway, it makes me think also, like, what does it mean to for Roberta Flack to have released this album of duets, right, with at least, you know, one that included duets with Hathaway posthumously in 1980, so after he's gone, it's, it's sort of this very eerie kind of haunting type of thing, so Hathaway's own absence and what that has meant for popular music, the way that it seems like so many R&B singers, you almost have to cite Hathaway as an influence, you know, in that attempt to kind of 
continually sort of restore his his presence, right, um, to make up to compensate for that that gone too soon, that real dramatic absence. But finally, within Hathaway's own music, I also see that kind of seeking of an accompaniment because what's interesting is that I notice that even in the studio versions of a song like He Ain't Heavy, where there is no audience, you know, to kind of thrill and titillate and to, you know, call and response with, he still does like a more mild version of this, like really the rumbling gospel rebuttal. He'll even call out sometimes, you know, like, can I get some help? And it's like, no, you, you can't because there's, no, there's not a live audience there, but that continual, like, seeking for you know that that kind of accompaniment that community that you hear whether he's in the studio or on stage is really interesting so I just thank you for that comment and I will try to find the alien is really productive oh, and one more then we go to Dave yeah yeah Never sings the title, you mean? Huh? Never sings they never, they never what? Oh, any lyrics at all? Oh, really? I think so. They sing like the first verse, then it's, yeah, then it's a jam. It's like an extended jam. Okay. No, I think that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that, the extended tease. You know, yeah, I mean, definitely, you could certainly read it that way. You know, what I think of a song like Everything is Everything is that it almost seems like the lyrics are incidental. You know, it's it's a jam. It's for the, you know, again, that kind of community, the, the platonic, erotic friends, you know, that, that comprise that, um, that make up the band for them to be able to play together and it's almost like the song needs a title so he'll call it so he'll call out everything is everything a couple times you know both in the studio and in, and in the live version of that song but I really do like the idea that you know that's part of the that's one way that that suspense his brilliant kind of understanding of musical suspense plays out in that particular performance is like here here are the lyrics and you're going to be waiting for me to sing them again but I'm but I'm not going to yeah, even though I'm going to continue to play the song for like 12 minutes. Yeah, thank you.